Welcome back, everybody. I'm Dr. Jun Chun, and I'm a psychiatry resident, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Logan Noon, also a psychiatry resident. Also a psychiatry resident. Um, we are not epidemiologists. That's what I wanted to start out this episode about. We're going to be talking about epidemiology today. Me and June have been tested on epidemiology, which is essentially like statistical analysis of um, really, I guess, any data, but as it applies to us, like medical data. I do not consider myself an expert. I consider myself competent in this stuff. I want to speak about this stuff. But if you're truly looking for the highest quality of epidemiology conversation, I want to point all you guys to Sensible Medicine. Vinay Prasad on YouTube, I think, does an incredible job. I'll put those links um, in my show notes to this episode. But today, we're going to be talking about masking. Does masking actually work? What are our um, statistical epidemiology conclusions that we've kind of arisen to uh, based on data? But I also think we should talk about our attitudes, maybe not even based on data, our, our emotional intuitions into this, uh, because it almost feels like mass is sort of a religion, regardless of, or maybe even you could say a delusion, uh, because regardless of what evidence you place in front of somebody, I still think that they're going to behave based on how they want to behave. What do you think? I mean, I agree with that. Um, certainly masks have been a hot topic issue um, since the onset of the pandemic, um, and I'm just going to say, as an Asian American, it's kind of weird because uh, I grew up in South Korea, mm -hmm. um, immigrated here when I was in the second grade. And, you know, growing up in Asia, like masks were a very common thing. Every winter, everybody wore masks. Um, mm -hmm. When you got the flu, you wore a mask. It wasn't a big deal. Um, but certainly in, here in the United States over the past two years, it's turned into this hot topic issue. Um, and it hasn't been without controversy. Um, and as time has passed on, we've uh, we've learned more and more about the efficacy. And there's been questions about how um, our conception of what these masks are supposed to do um, has kind of evolved over time. And I know, Logan, today you're going to try to get into some of that and provide some education for all of us. I'll certainly do my best. You know, so how I kind of got I've been feeling some type of way about masks for quite some time and how I wanted to start this episode is really, you know, I, I follow those podcasts that I shouted out at the beginning. That's what I like to listen to as a medical person to improve my own understanding of science. I think they do a great job. Um, and there was this just huge study called the physical interventions to interrupt or reduce the spread of respiratory viruses. Okay. So what does that actually mean? Physical interventions. We're not talking about vaccines. These are physical interventions like mass, like, um, hand washing. Actually, what wasn't really studied in this particular study, was social distancing, whether we're, you know, wearing like those gowns or even those uh, face um, shields, eye protection. That actually wasn't really analyzed in this study. It has to do with N95 masks, surgical masks, and hand washing. And we're going to talk about kind of some of the conclusions that they came from this meta-analysis study, which is in meta-analysis, what that means is gathering um, data across many different studies. And this is kind of um, for randomized controlled trials also as well. This is not an observational trial. This is like having a control arm. And in 
really all of science, this is what we feel is kind of the gold standard, right? It's, it's, you can, there's always some elements of bias, of course, to all studies, but this can somewhat eliminate some bias because we're trying to bring together all different types of data across many different studies. I think one of the most important things to do in, in talking about this uh, study that was in the Cochrane Review, which is a very well-respected journal, is a lot of these studies were looking at viral epidemics of acute respiratory infections before COVID. So this isn't just a COVID study. This is, you know, it was looking at uh, SARS-CoV-1, H1N1, even in 2003, um, you know, kind of across a bunch of different um, respiration sort of infections over time. I want to kind of have a disclosure about this, that my attitude towards masking has changed. And I want in the future that my attitude towards masking and really any medical intervention to change based on science. When I first, when all of us first uh, were exposed to COVID, I just want to share a story, a quick story. I remember I was in a grocery store. This was in Yakima, Washington, very rural um, Republican section of Washington. And this was right at the beginning of the pandemic. I don't remember exactly when this was, but let's just call it maybe May, June or something of 2020, okay? I remember I saw this person in the grocery store and I was kind of feeling some type of way that day, little, maybe even hypomanic, I guess, in a sense. And he wasn't wearing a mask. And honestly, I started talking shit. And I was like, hey, man, I, I and I, I, I thought it was on me as a almost doctor. I wasn't even a doctor at that point, fourth year medical student, to try to educate this person. I don't think I was doing it in the most respectful way. Wait, did you try? You actually tried? I was talking shit. Like to his face. To you his actually, face. Ooh, spicy. To his face. All right, tell me more. You know, I'm embarrassed in some ways because I, I didn't think I did it in the most respectful way. I was talking shit. And I was like, mm -hmm. look, man, like, and he, he was like, I'm not wearing a mask because of um, anxiety or panic or some kind of thing. And honestly, in that day... I dismissed his complaint. I thought he was stupid, you uh -huh. know, and, and, you know, three years removed from that, I feel like I really do have a different attitude, most especially kind of supported by data now too. But I think we do have to respect everyone's personal decision, whether they choose to wear a mask or whether they choose not to. Um, maybe he did actually have some underlying anxiety. Maybe he was just a staunch Trump Republican who didn't want to wear I was just about to say mask. that. He might have just been a Republican. Um, who really knows? Yeah. But, you know, I, I just want to say that story because, like, I think we need to give people the permission to change their attitudes. Like, look at how I behaved in April, whatever it was, May of 2020 versus now we're speaking, recording this, you know, February 2023. Like, we have to be able to change. All right, let's get into the study. Yeah, and we all change. It's part of, it's part of being a human, mm -hmm. right? I mean, none of us are static individuals. All of us continue to gather new data every day. We have new experiences every single day. And a mark of a wise and mature human being is to be able to integrate those new experiences, the new knowledge that we acquire, and to change the opinions and, and our stances on certain issues. Mm -hmm. And um, before I let you go on, you know, which uh, was, was going to be, I'm sure, excellent educational piece, um, I, I think it was just one of the things during the pandemic, and especially surrounding masking, is it sort of became a proxy to judge somebody's character. Right. And it sort of became maybe even a symbol that you wore on your face. Very much um, so. I've had friends tell me, oh, yeah, I'm wearing a mask because I don't want people to think I'm a Republican. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and vice versa. I've had friends tell me, yeah, I don't wanna, I don't wanna wear a mask, you know, because I don't want other people to think I'm a liberal. So it goes both ways, and mm-hmm. that's such a um, uniquely human thing. Um, and it, it was an aspect of COVID that really complicated our um, healthcare response to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Let's get into the weeds, my friend. I'm ready. Let's get into the weeds. Okay. So remember, this is a randomized control trial across, uh, or a meta-analysis across randomized control trials and cluster randomized control trials. How many times can you say that fast? Okay, so there were 610,872 studies. We call that like the N, right? The number of studies across 78 randomized control trials. Only six of them were actually during the COVID pandemic. I think that's actually one of the fair criticisms of this. But remember, this is a meta-analysis. We're not specifically just looking at COVID, but looking at acute respiratory viral disease. And we think that, we theorize that, you know, these viruses spread in very analogous ways. You know, there's probably differences between each one of them, but they also have a lot of similarities at the end of the day, too. Several of these studies were in the 2009 H1N1 uh, Mm. influenza. Uh, It's notable that there was heterogeneous um, settings, meaning by that there was suburban settings, hospital wards, community settings, very uh, high socioeconomic settings and very low immigrant uh, communities too. This was across many different um, settings, okay? So kind of what does all of this really mean? You know, how many people are actually going to go read this study? How many people are actually going to go get in the weeds? And if you do want to get even further in the weeds than what we're doing today, go listen to Sensible Medicine. Go listen to Vinay Prasad's YouTube channel. But What did they really find? There was kind of three main conclusions that I pulled out of this study that is actually, I thought would have gotten a lot more coverage in the news. It wasn't. Very, very odd. I'm not surprised to hear that. Sadly not. We'll we'll talk about that in a little bit. Okay, so summary of finding number one was comparing... The setting was both in the community and in the hospitals, comparing medical and surgical masks versus no mask at all. Okay, so, you know, at first it looked at um, viral respiratory illness, uh, influenza slash COVID like illnesses. So remember what that means is not just COVID, not just influenza, but all respiratory illness that causes that acute respiratory infection from a virus. Long story short, there is no statistical difference between masking and not masking in this study. Remember, this is across community and hospital. Right. So at this point, we're extrapolating um, the the study that was done with other viruses and kind of uh, making inferences about um, the ability of masks to limit the transmission of COVID. Am I I following that correctly? Sort of. So this first part, this one I'm looking at, and I I can read out the exact numbers, um, but I think in reality, I almost want to post these tables for our viewers to, to view on their own time, because this is viral respiratory illness, influenza, or COVID-like. So remember, these randomized controlled trials included uh, studying masks even before COVID was a thing. These were studies that were you know, from 2006, before we even had COVID-19, okay? So, and within this um, this study uh, analyzation, there were some COVID. So, so let me get to the next line. Now, if the next line, viral respiratory illness in laboratory confirmed influenza and SARS, 
Similarly, again, the findings were not statistically significant. There was no difference um, in medical mass slash surgical mass versus no mass in the community. Mm-hmm. Kind of very interesting finding. Um, and, you know, some of the adverse events, they always try to report this in the study. You know, adverse events uh, reported for the mass included warmth, discomfort, respiratory difficulties, humidity, pain, shortness of breath. Actually, I'm surprised it doesn't say here like skin reactions. You know, I've even had like some breakouts, right? Really? Like, yeah. Yeah. I cover it up with makeup. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> but, but my wife actually does. Um, okay. Any questions on that that um, conclusion from the study? I'm following. Um, but I just want to point out already the most significant thing that stands out to me is that this data seems to be available even before the onset of the pandemic. So seems like before whatever um, masking guidelines were given, there was studies done that we could have looked at to see if the masking policies that was imposed would have been efficacious. Is that fair to say? Would you agree with that? Right. And and I um, I mean, how many times can I shout out this podcast in one episode? In Sensible Medicine, they actually brought that exactly up. Mm-hmm. That maybe that's why Tony Fauci, when this whole thing started, said that we actually shouldn't be worrying about masks. I remember him saying that. Because the yeah. data was there. Yeah. And we, we, you know, who really knows exactly the transmission of COVID in a sense? Like how different is it from regular influenza in a sense? And there's even been some varieties in the transmission rates between like the original COVID virus versus the Delta variant versus the Omicron variant. You know, we continuously hear that these less severe, Ill, the less severe viral infections are actually more contagious. Which actually totally makes sense, right? If you don't have to go to the hospital and you're not needing oxygen, you're running around in this world probably spreading all your COVID. Makes total sense. Okay, conclusion number two, June. So in this now compared, once again, um, the setting was hospital and um, uh, normal households. Comparing the intervention was N95 mass versus the medical and surgical mass. Okay, so... um, you know, geez, if you don't know what an N95 mask looks like at this point in the pandemic, I, <laughs> I'm very sad. But Google it. Okay, so N95, like the best mask, this is the mask that me and June have to wear in the hospital when we go analyze a patient with COVID disease. And very analogous to before, the statistical findings were not significant. There was no um, statistical difference between the N95 versus wearing the surgical mask. So similar to before, uh, viral respiratory, clinical respiratory illness, but not confirmed. Um, And also including the confirmed influenza, confirmed COVID, the findings were not statistically significant. So similar again, that... Did it really actually make a true difference, N95 versus surgical mask? According to the data, no. According to the data. Okay. So I think before we talk about the final conclusion, let's talk about some criticisms of this study that I think are actually fair. Um, Some of the criticisms of this study had to do with, okay, um, how it looked at, especially like in the hospital setting wearing these N95s, these people weren't wearing N95s 24 hours a day seven days a week. They wore the N95s when they were around other COVID patients or doing the duties of their hospital, but when they were outside of the hospital, they probably didn't. You know, it's not, can't follow these people around perfectly. I think it's even fair to say like, look, I believe that N95 masks like can um, protect me additionally from surgical masks, but they have to be used extremely perfectly and at all times. You know, like Today at lunch, I had friends with some of my colleagues uh, around the hospital. Like that, 
that clearly is a risk where we could easily spread the disease to one another, right? So mm-hmm. what are we supposed to never eat with one another? Are we supposed to wear an N95 at all times of the uh, day? Like it's not realistic to me. I think that that was a criticism of this study that I read, but this is actually looking at like how a patient population really all of us in society can use masks. We can't wear N95s all times of the day. That's unrealistic. To right. Me. What do you think about that? Well, I agree with that 100%. And I think there's uh, also the concern of is everybody wearing these masks in the manner that you're supposed to use it? Um, I mean, I, I also listened to some of um, some of that podcast. And one of the things that I, I thought was very interesting was um, Dr. Prasad brought up the point where you know, you walk up to somebody wearing an N95 and you look over and you see they have a gap, right. you know, at, at the nose bridge. Um, I mean, I've certainly been guilty of it. Like these masks are uncomfortable and like sometimes you can't breathe. So, you know, there may be times throughout the long day where you're not wearing it, you know, in in, in the absolute correct way all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and like if you're not wearing it, you know, the same way, it just becomes more of a more of a facade, more of just a display of uh, conformity mm-hmm. rather than a true measure of safety measures. Exactly. You know, I have a beard. By having a beard, I am not wearing an N95 100% perfectly as it was designed. Um, and does that mean I never can wear a beard for the rest of my life working in healthcare? You know, I have to kind of think like, what's really our goal here? You know, I one part that I actually would like to see this data further extrapolated in is at the end of the day, I don't even really truly care about confirmation of influenza or COVID. What I truly care about is hospitalization and death. Mm-hmm. So, I, and, you know, although it, I would, I would just be curious, you know, like, do these masks actually change the statistical risk of um, death and hospitalization? You know, based on these uh, non-significant findings, that how it didn't even change the confirmation of that influenza or COVID, it's probably not, but it's, it's unfair to make that conclusion, I think, completely. Mm-hmm. All right. Any questions on that? I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, are you at all surprised by the findings of this study saying that it, masks essentially make no difference on the transmission rate, surgical masks or N95 masks? Sadly, no, I'm not. Um, I'm not surprised. You know, I just think, you know, and, and Vinay Prasad, I remember he quoted in his podcast, you know, I think our ego gets in the way a lot as medical professionals. We think that stuff we do is actually controlling the chaos when in reality, I think it's completely the other way around. I think we can do our best to try to um, impact human nature, but most of the stuff we do doesn't really do shit. Perhaps it's a coping mechanism. It just helps us, yeah, like you said, help us to feel in control. And, you know, as mental health professionals, we know that ability to, you know, feel like that you have control over your destiny is a big part of your mental health well-being. Right. And, you know, I would even maybe like apply that philosophy to us as psychiatrists. Like sometimes I feel like, yeah, we're putting people in the hospital. Yeah, we put people on these medicines. I think sometimes we like to think we're having a big impact on their people's lives. But as I get further into this career and I'm still in my infancy, but I'm starting to realize like, hey, you know, I need to check my ego at the door. Maybe actually I can't 
fully impact someone's behavior, how they choose to conduct their life. You know, maybe it's a little sliver, but there's so much more that goes into it. There's so much in life that you can control. Right, right. Let's not go off the rails too much before I even finish right, the I'm conclusions let you get back to of the study. So I know I'm being like pessimistic over here about life and medicine, and but there was some quality findings actually on how we can prevent respiratory and uh, COVID illness. Hand washing. Hand washing. It's like we would think it's so simple and like we're so good at it. I've certainly improved my hand washing um, patterns, right? You know, in the middle of COVID, like uh, washing my hands just more often, I guess, than I used to. And so um, across uh, it basically in this study, remember this meta-analysis across all these different patient populations, uh, hand washing was one of the interventions, the, the last finding that they really noted on, and it did reduce acute respiratory illness with statistical findings. And it also reduced a composite of acute respiratory illness, influenza-like illness, and laboratory-confirmed influenza. You know, and it's hard to say there's really too much... Uh, adverse events related with hand washing. Like it's noting here, like uh, sometimes the hand sanitizer was maybe not the most comfortable on your hands and stuff like that. But, you know, compared to the the mass that statistically didn't really show an improvement. Um, and, you know, there's, there is some real discomfort, you know, going back to that uh, study or that, that, excuse me, that story at the beginning of anxiety. I think a lot about our patients, you know, we're, we're both mental health people who they've been raped. Mm-hmm. Or they've been traumatized in some other way where maybe they had like uh, someone hold their mouth or their hand over their mouth or were tied up and had something over their mouth. Can you imagine what it must be like to be forced to wear a mask over your face? How anxiety provoking that could be? Or if in the midst of having a panic attack, you also then have to wear a mask on top of that? Like, I think we legitimately did harm to our psychiatric population during the midst of this COVID pandemic right because when we're at the height of the pandemic if you weren't wearing a mask it wasn't like oh maybe this person is super anxious maybe this person might have some past trauma related to masking it was 100 all the time this person is a trump supporter this person is anti-science this person is going to get grandma killed and it became like i said earlier it became all about character it became more of a statement of your character and the character that you're trying to uh, portray to the world rather than about real safety right and you know look if you go on google right now and and type in like do mass work you are going to find mixed data you know i think it's important again to highlight that this cochrane review is in a well-respected medical journal. This was a meta-analysis across many different randomized control trials with literally over, what was it, 680,000 uh, you know, participants? It's big. You know, there's a quote here from Jennifer Nuzzo. Randomized control trials do not represent the totality of evidence on masking and handwashing. There are other observational or laboratory studies, but randomized control trials are beneficial because they minimize bias and confounding by unwanted variables. This is the gold standard, you know, so you can find other studies out there that do show a benefit of, um, of masking, you know, like I know that exists, but you know, there's different qualities of evidence. Sometimes people who are producing these studies do have a certain agenda at the end of the day. Um, but you know, I think, look, no study is perfect. I, I talked about some of the criticisms of this. Do you have any criticisms that kind of come to your mind, June? About the study? Yeah. Or just like these thoughts. 
I would say I have more of a comment overall. Um, you know, we, we talked about in the early days of the pandemic, um, Dr. Fauci came out and mm-hmm. he initially stated that masks, you know, like he basically stated, we don't know if we need to mask up. Right. And then it suddenly um, became everybody needs to mask up all the time. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't mask up, you wouldn't be allowed into restaurants. You wouldn't be allowed into grocery stores. And that kind of fervor, that kind of, um, you know, zeal went even further uh, where the conversation then became if you're not vaccinated, if you're not masking um, and if you get COVID and you get seriously ill. there were I remember there were tons of articles in The New York Times saying, hey, maybe these people shouldn't maybe these people aren't deserving of medical care if they get COVID. And that's the scary thing. And that's, that's what I mean when I, when I say, you know, all these COVID policies became a representation of character rather Mm -hmm. than of safety. We began to draw hard lines um, and hard lines of judgment and really split people up. And, you know, it's just really, really unfortunate. And of course, the hyperpoliticization, you know, that we have in this country today, I'm sure contributed to that a little bit. But it was very scary from a medical pro- uh, professional standpoint that, like, really, is that, are, are we really looking for ways to not give people that need care mm-hmm. um, the, the treatment that's readily available? Um, I don't think any of us signed up for this job to be a doctor um, so that we can pick and choose who to give care to. Right. I mean, certainly there's times, you know, times of war, times of extreme um, uh, lack of resources where you do have to triage. But that is, you know, we consider that to be a very unfortunate uh, circumstance. And mm-hmm. thankfully, in this country, I mean, we're, we're one of the wealthiest nations in the world. Um, we do have the resources to provide care to all the patients and to see you know, politics, to see ideology, um, to see judgment of character infused into um, this idea of who gets care, who doesn't. It was very disturbing to me. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of things that my wife always, because I complain about this a lot. This is something kind of near and close to my heart. And she always poses the question to me, Logan, why do you even care if, if someone out in the community chooses to wear a mask? You know, there's a multitude of reasons. And, you know, I th- I feel like when I start talking about this, people automatically are like, you're a Trump supporter. It's like, no, I'm not. Like, and I, I, I don't like to identify with any political party. And this isn't a political discussion. You know, I think that let's look at there are legitimate data. I actually wish I had it in front of it. But especially with kid masking, it can reduce their ability to develop adequate language skills and communication skills. You know, I think if we extrapolate that further, you know, it's extremely hard to measure this. But Don't you think people are potentially more mean to one another, rude to one another when we're wearing a mask and you can't see someone's true identity or someone's true facial expressions? I know personally, as a um, psychiatric professional, I find it incredibly challenging to connect with someone at baseline. And now you got to put this mask on my face where they can only see my eyes. I find myself like oddly making weird gestures with my eyes to try to smile or try to show facial expressions. And I hate it. And I think it's so disingenuous. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you are enjoying this podcast, I'd really like you to check out the other podcast that I created before this. This one's called Talk Mental Health with Logan Noon. I created this when I was still in medical school and also still starting uh, residency. So if you enjoyed this show, guaranteed you're going to like that show as well. Thank you. I feel like, you know, when if we're forced as a patient population or at least encouraged to wear masks, there should be data around it. 
I really fear that this um, widespread exception of masks now, you know, remember this is three years into the pandemic. This is not at the beginning. All of us, or at least most people have had the opportunity to get vaccinated, or at least they probably had COVID at this point if they haven't been vaccinated. Yet we still see masks kind of everywhere. And if it's not reducing um, the number of actual disease, why are we doing it? I'm afraid, I'm afraid that it's breeding kind of this, in a sense, anxiety, this like hypochondriac kind of mentality that, no, 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 I'm immunocompromised. I need to need to wear masks at all time. It's like, okay, did you come to that conclusion or did a doctor actually advise you, you know, you should wear a mask at all times? Um, I don't know. I, I, I really fear that this is now becoming in a sense like a psychiatric condition, like a delusional thought process, because it's not based on science. It's not based on data. It's based on someone's personal beliefs, like a religion. Sure. Um, but it is reality that, I mean, there's a masking mandate in our hospital, right? Yes. Yeah, there is. So we're pretty much required um, to wear masks all the time when we're when we're in the hospital. And mm -hmm. it's weird, you know, it's a weird, weird thing to think about because you think, you know, an organization full of intelligent doctors scientists yeah much smarter than us um mm. yeah okay okay I'm, much more I'm now starting to believe maybe a lot dumber than us bro sure i i think that's a very fair criticism i think one of the major things um one of the major lessons that at least i personally learned from the pandemic is these people that i formally placed on a pedestal um mm -hmm. these people with so much experience um so much credentials behind their name i'm finding out that you know maybe sometimes they don't have all the answers um right. and you know, it was extremely disappointing for me to see these individuals that I admired um, not engage with the criticisms and essentially try to go the route of censorship um, to try to uh, say that this is misinformation, um, that you're a COVID denier. Again, mm -hmm. it became a character issue and they try to shut the conversation down and it became a non-negotiable issue. Um, and we, we know from the data, I mean, you know, Logan, even without the data, like intuitively, like just... Look, look at a mask. Look, look at what this thing is. You're telling me this piece of cloth is going to, you know, that I can breathe through, that, right. you know, that oxygen can pass through, is going to stop a virus particle from passing through it? Mm -hmm. Like, come on. We know how small a virus particle is. You're telling me mm -hmm. that by putting this on, we're going to get rid of COVID? I mean, intuitively, yeah. it just didn't make sense. And I agree with you. This data, to me, is not very surprising at all. Mm -hmm. And I, I, you know, look. Medicine at its nature, people don't like to admit this, but it's a customer service business, right? You know, I that's why I get really frustrated. I feel like almost if you work in healthcare, you should be forced to work in some kind of customer service industry first at a restaurant. At, you know, I, I worked at a lot of like kind of weddings, kind of like catering, like stuff like that. Like you should be forced into that mentality. Like we have customers, patients in a sense, come in. And look, they are paying us money, whether it's through their insurance or whatever. But like, I think that they should have a good time and at least like a quality customer experience. And I would argue, and I think it's extremely hard to measure this, but I think human interaction is better if both people can uh, observe each other's face. I agree. Um, our facial expressions, our body language is such a fundamental part of the way we communicate. Mm -hmm. It tells so much about us. Um, and I mean, a big part of emotional intelligence is being able to read somebody's facial expressions. And especially in the world of psychiatry, when we need to, you know, 
oftentimes on the first time me- meeting a question, um, we need to build that rapport, that relationship to the point where we're going to ask them about the most intimate aspects of their lives. And here I am sitting with half my face covered. Um, and also the patient has half their face covered. Um, and sometimes I I um, find myself wondering in the midst of doing my evaluations, if I ask a question that I'm not sure about, like, hey, how is this person reacting to this? I can't tell because they have their mask on. And right. I'm not going to lie to you, Logan. There's been a bunch of times where I felt so frustrated that I really wanted to just say, hey, like, let's just pull our masks down. Right. This is really getting in the way of me doing this evaluation. I may or may not have done that. Same here. <laughs> may or may not, not have. Not on record. Yeah. I, I'm not on record saying that. I've just... I'm going to leave that out there. Right. Okay, it's question so for you, June. Did you do anatomy lab as a medical student on real cadavers? Did you not? I thought everybody well, did it. Sadly, sadly, no, not everyone does it. I really? have met medical students that haven't done cadavers. And so let's get real dark for a second because um, not many people in this world get exposed to, I, I say, the privilege of what we got to as medical students. Cutting a human uh, being open. Right. It's dark. It's sick. But it is a privilege in a sense because it provides such an incredible learning experience. And what I want to share is, you know, I remember in medical school, we we did have the privilege of, I think our medical school class had like 60 different bodies or something. And, and how it worked for medical school is there was groups of four and every week you shared um, your your cadaver. And then the next week you would go to a different one. So you got to see a bunch of different oh, types of bodies. Okay. okay? Wait, how many students were in your class that you guys had 60 cadavers? I don't know, man. 170 or 170? something? 170? Wow. You guys had a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It I think, was, like I think I we say, had like 20 oh, okay. for a class of 160. Oh, wow. Yeah, we oh, had way more. Yeah. yeah. It was, like I keep saying, it really truly was a privilege because when you see these cadavers' facial muscles... You really start to understand the intricacy of facial expressions. I just quickly Googled, there are 43 individual muscles in the face. Mm-hmm. There's a reason that our bodies evolved for that. And I think it has true value in our life. And we need to be able to see this. You know, I, I know I'm biased. I'm a psychiatrist. Like, I'm not saying we shouldn't have zero mass in the hospital setting. I think that that's maybe a little too far. You know, when someone's in the ICU, if someone's like severely immunocompromised, like, look, even though in these statistical studies, this remember this was um, in the hospital and the community-based setting. Like I'd be curious in the ICU setting, would this actually impact um, patient outcomes? Like maybe. And also, it's it's not that discomfortable to wear a mask, right? So right. in the ICU, I do think it's like fine if this is going to help someone stay alive because they're they're on the verge of death. Fine. But then where me and you work over in the psych ward where, you know, people don't even shower or like wipe their own ass for like months at a time. You're telling me having them wear a mask is really going to make a difference on whether they actually take their schizophrenic meds or not? No. I think what we need to focus on the most is the quality of the interaction. And that's, of course, more complicated than whether you wear a mask or not. But I see that it's harming patient care. You know, there's so many times these days where patients can't get placed because they're COVID positive. They're not symptomatic with COVID. They just happen to have COVID. So then they hang out in a hospital room all day by themselves. That's the worst thing you could do for someone's mental health alone. It, it drives me crazy, June. I could rant about this for hours. Yeah, yeah, we should... Uh... Let me elaborate on that a little bit. But before I do, I think what you're saying is that with masking, I mean, we're not 
we're not saying we're anti-masks. We're not saying that there's no place for masks in medicine or in society today. I think all we're simply trying to say is that there's trade-offs, just like anything else. And just like any other treatment that we may offer patients, there's a risk and there's a benefit. And I think both of us are simply advocating that we weigh the risks and the benefits appropriately. And the best way to do that is to be able to have honest conversations about it. And one of the biggest tragedies about the whole masking situation was that, I mean, this study, like you said, it's been around even before COVID, yet we weren't talking about this. It was, in fact, dangerous to talk about it at a certain time. Mm Yeah. Yeah. So going back to these patients that come in just real quickly, because I've been involved in a lot of these cases. Um, So, you know, over during the night, you know, sometimes we'll cover the emergency department. We'll we'll have a patient that comes in crisis and maybe they're suicidal. Whatever the reason may be, they need to go to an inpatient facility. And mind you, when a patient needs to go to an inpatient hospital, these people are not stable. Um, and we do everything we can to transfer them to an inpatient facility as soon as possible. Because the way they get to us is through the ED and in the hospital setting, in the in the emergency department setting, it's much different than a psychiatric hospital. There's no staff, there's no therapists that are um, equipped to handle mental health emergencies to the degree that is that they're able to handle it in an in a legitimate inpatient psychiatric right. hospital. And like you said, um, we do a we do a test for COVID every time a patient comes. Um, I think it's part of the requirements before they're transferred. They have to have a negative COVID test. Uh, but whenever it comes up positive, there's a mandatory 10-day quarantine where essentially they get transferred from the ED to the medicine floor. So they just basically go upstairs. They're put in respiratory isolation um, and they're just in a room by themselves and they have to sit there for 10 days. And as the psychiatry service in the hospital setting, I mean, we try our best, but we're very limited on the things that we can do. And I just feel so terrible for anybody that ends up in that situation. And it breaks my heart. Right. And, and I would, I think there's some inaccuracies there. Cause I know some facilities now require only five days, which is amazing, but awesome. that being said, there were some facilities that were requiring 30 days of quarantine. It, you know, there's no uniformity here. It's, it's wildness, you know? And I just like to think about like, man, so we have this COVID patient who now we're going to stick in a room all by themselves with no simulation. This is a person that lives in the normal world and is having trouble feeling connected with anybody else and now we isolate them what if we took a totally radical like 180 approach to to that and like you know i think of when i got sick with my manic disorder like i remember i just kept craving like why can't we go on a walk out in the woods you know thankfully where i was at in the hospital was a rural area of connecticut but like yeah why can't we like spend some of the time outside i know there's weather um restrictions of course in certain areas of the country in certain times of the year but you know why why can't we use the outdoors to work with covid that if if we do want to truly minimize someone's covid risk keeping them outdoors and maybe having more psychiatric groups and psychiatric treatment outdoors would actually be one of the best ways to handle this you know one thing that really gets me super excited about the future june is is i hope that we can develop some means of like a psychiatric urgent care that's maybe over a telemedicine or like through some kind of internet modality so that person who does have covid doesn't have to sit in a room all by themselves essentially for five or ten days however long it is that maybe they can be linked with a whole series of professionals but it's over their phone they can still you know be outside and and 
quarantine in a sense, but maybe that's something we don't even necessarily need to always do moving forward as well. It truly is a failure of the system. The mm-hmm. system, as the policies are constructed currently, we are letting these individuals down. Mm-hmm. Logan, you know what's the most frustrating to me? Um, it's the patients that had COVID like a month ago. Mm-hmm. They come in, they need to go to an inpatient facility. They're no longer symptomatic. They've gotten over it, but they're still testing positive. Right. And the context doesn't matter. It's like whenever you have a positive COVID test, it's automatically you need to, they're not going to take you. You need to sit around the hospital for a few days. And then playing off that, I think one of the worst ones is, oh, you had an at-home COVID test that was positive? Yeah, but it wasn't one of ours. So it actually starts off of when you had a PCR confirmed, not one of the antigen ones. And I know the antigen tests aren't always as specific, but it's, it's infuriating. You know, I, like you... I used to always think like the leadership, the admin always had uh, superior skills and understanding than what I did. But now that I'm a little more in this role, it's I do kind of have a different attitude. And maybe that's part of the reason why we're doing this podcast is hopefully that we can inspire listeners out there to form their own opinions. You know, if you're out there and you strongly disagree with us, good. I, I would be interested to hear your argument. Um, you know, and if you're looking for more hard uh, data into this and epidemiology commentary. Once again, I would highly suggest you check out Sensible Medicine, uh, Vinay Prasad. They do an incredible, incredible, incredible job. Um, You know, better than us, I would say, at least discussing epidemiology stuff um, about this study because it's, it's very unfortunate to me that when I was reviewing and doing my homework for this, I couldn't find the Cochrane Review mass study on any major um, news platform except for. Is it Fox? Fox. <laughs> it was infuriating. Yeah, dude. that was a wild guess, but. It was infuriating. This <laughs> kind is of a study across many different countries' studies. It was I found it on The Hill and on Fox. And I couldn't, you know, the hill, like the news outlet. Yes, yes. So that just shows the politicization of medicine, which is really, really, really unfortunate. And like this guy, this Thomas Jefferson dude, I think he's out of Italy or Switzerland or something like has nothing to do with our political party system at all. And, you know, this is many different scientists had to um, contribute to this. Um, They're all over the world. Like these studies were not just in America. This this why is scientific data being politicized i mean i know that's not i'm not the first person to say that right how many times we heard that in this last three years of the pandemic Mm -hmm. but it's infuriating this study was huge i thought like all the news outlets would be covering this because in my eyes i think this is good you know maybe we can get some i know back you kind of highlighted at the beginning like um korea and how this is kind of well accepted like i guess i'm curious like do you think a study like this impacts korean culture I don't think it would make a difference at all because mm-hmm. that's just kind of what we do. It's just assimilated into our culture. It's been a part of our culture mm-hmm. and there's no there's no complaints about it. There never was. There's no people questioning like the efficacy data. I don't think so because it was never perhaps as it per- pertains to COVID specifically. Right. Um, perhaps as it pertains to the idea that we can completely eliminate the transmission of COVID through masking. But as far as people's willingness, um, the willingness of the citizen population to wear the masks, um, I think it was something that we're already acclimated to. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't it wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, they've we've had masks. Like I remember like walking to kindergarten, I was wearing a mask. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's a different culture. It's a different and, culture. You know, sadly, though, I actually feel kind of similarly to... Um, I live right across the street from an elementary school and I see a lot mm-hmm. of kids there um, wearing a mask. Or yeah, yeah. I watched this woman today riding her bike wearing a mask. Yeah. Um, driving the car alone wearing a mask. Yeah. Even Logan. in the face of data, I don't think those individuals are going to change their behavior. Right, right. Um, and I just want to make a quick point about culture because culture as we're taught in medicine is such an important part of how we perceive health how we perceive treatments that are proposed it affects our every decision because it's an innate part of who we are and it was very interesting i read that article by dr prasad um, and he was talking about the culture around covid right you can't compare california to like louisiana right right? because they have different beliefs about covid they have different beliefs about masking they have different beliefs about vaccines Um, they have different beliefs about lockdowns so that affects um, somebody's ability to like how how likely they are to report if they even have symptoms of covid and i think that's an interesting part of the discussion that hasn't been mentioned at all because it seems like with everything else culture a person's culture a patient's culture is so emphasized in our training and it's so Mm -hmm. odd that with this specific covid issue that part was completely forgotten about and we lost all sympathy for people who disagreed with us and that was a real tragedy Um, another point i want to make is I think one of the biggest lessons I got from becoming a doctor myself is that I've come to recognize that doctors don't necessarily have all the answers. Right. Um, I mean, certainly some do, a lot of them do, but the ones that do have all the answers, the ones that are the most knowledgeable are the ones that are going out on their own, looking for studies um, and comparing different sources and really weighing the cons and the pros and the merits of each and every data point that's out there. Um, And, I can also say that there's a lot of other doctors who don't pursue additional reading or knowledge outside of the hospital. And a lot of the times it's the organization, it's the hospital that kind of pushes down these guidelines and tells the physicians what, what the policy is going to be. And in turn, that's that's what we recommend to our patients. Yeah. So perhaps, you know, speaking for myself, it's really encouraged me to do my own research, mm-hmm. to think for myself. Um, in the pursuit of trying to provide the best possible care for our patients. I think that's a good way to end, man, because I think, you know, even one of the conclusions of this Cochrane study um, was more studies are needed, you know, and I want to be humble enough that um, in the face of evidence in the future that is maybe contrary to what I uh, outlined today, I need to change my own attitudes. You know, I need to be open to adjusting, you know, and I don't want to be one of those kind of delusional people that is so stuck in their beliefs that even in the face of evidence, they're unwilling to change. And so I always strive to be that person. I know I'll never be perfect, right? But, you know, in the face of evidence, I want to change my opinion. I need to change my opinion. I owe it to my patients. Absolutely. And one last thought. So, Logan, I'm going to I'm going to tell you something. I feel like with uh, with the masking issue, with the pandemic as a whole, I unfortunately feel like I lost a lot of trust in our medical organizations. Is that bad? Is that bad for me to say as a doctor? Um, because I feel like there's been so many inconsistencies and there's been so much um, disagreement, um, so much like, I don't know how to describe it. There's been so much conflict internally within within the no. medical community and... It, it just 
showed me that nobody has all the answers and it just really stressed the importance of having honest and open discussion once again. So right now, while you're, you're saying that, I mean, I think that's like, in a sense, like I almost view it as like obvious. I feel the, the public trust in COVID has gone down so, so much. Um, it's crazy. You know, I'm right now trying to think, to look at like how many people actually got that fourth dose of the COVID vaccine. Oh, it's very low. Isn't it like 10%? Yeah, it was very, very low. We talked about it like yeah, real briefly on a different podcast crazy, episode. You know, and it, the public trust in um, science and doctors um, has gone down tremendously tremendously and even yeah my own personal um attitudes towards science as a whole has even changed because of covid you know we actually did that one episode episode three i don't know what was it about ssris antidepressants yeah I yeah think maybe that was episode three it was you know, titled uh, an honest discussion about antidepressants you know and it's like yeah like i think that we do need just need to continuously question and justify uh what we're because people hopefully trust us right we're both doctors you know mm-hmm. reminder we're psychiatry residents not psych- psychiatrists yet but psychiatrists hopefully people trust what we're saying but you know we do need to continuously look for new data new evidence to support what we're telling our patients yeah and i think you'd agree with me here logan i think a part of the reason why we're doing this podcast is to show the public that there are independent thinking physicians out there um even those in training. And we're not alone. Um, Not everybody's doing a podcast like we are, but from interacting with our colleagues, we know there's a lot of individual thoughts. um, There's a lot of differing opinions. um, And even though we don't see it in the public sphere, um, we know it exists and we're trying to represent that to a certain degree to hopefully restore the faith of the public in the medical system, that there are doctors that are willing to discuss the pros and cons that are willing to way every risk and benefit and search for the truth so that we can give the best possible recommendation with the best outcome in mind hell yeah man i think that's a great way to end i agree all right cheers follow us give us a review a rating whatever thanks for listening and send us an email if you have any comments there we go we'd love to hear from you thanks everybody